What happened to American Indian prisoners of war in colonial America? We'll discuss that today on Footnoting History. Hello, and welcome to Footnoting History. I'm Elizabeth, and this week we're discussing what happened to American Indians after the Pequot War, which took place in the 1630s in what's now termed New England, or the Northeastern United States. Before we begin, I want to do a quick overview of my choices in terminology. First, except where I discuss specific tribes, I use the term American Indian to describe the indigenous communities in colonial America. I made this choice based on what seems to be the term used by most of the indigenous peoples of Connecticut and Massachusetts, the geographic homes to many in this story. Next, when I use the terms servant or slave. Throughout this episode, I use these terms, servant and slave, together as regard what happened to American Indians and other peoples. In the 1600s, the terminology regarding what it meant to be a servant or a slave was actually still pretty fluid in colonial America and they're often used interchangeably. The records can refer to people as both quote-unquote servants and slaves, or they'll describe large groups as servants and slaves. Today, these terms are very distinct, but 400 years ago, one could be a servant or a slave who had been bought by a family and served them until your ransom or fee was covered. You could be an indentured servant who worked for a set amount of time to pay back your contract holder for fees related to your transportation. You could be a slave who earned back their freedom, or you could be a servant who was then held in perpetuity. The category of slave, however, and this will come into play more in our story, no longer was applied to white people after 1637. And so that's when we start to see this differentiation between servant and slave and how long you stayed in that position. The ability to become free as a slave also in the Americas will seem more directed towards American Indians who were enslaved than those from Africa. Okay, during the chronological period this episode is covering, therefore, it's about a time period where these legal categories are in flux, and we just really need to keep that in the forefront of our mind. Finally, the American Indian tribes I'm going to be discussing in this episode include the Pequot, the Mohegan, and the Narragansett. The Pequot and the Mohegan were tribes in what is now modern-day Connecticut in the northeastern United States. In 1620, it was estimated that there were approximately 16,000 Pequot, but due to epidemics from contact with the colonists, the numbers fell to 3,000 by 1637. In 1910, there were only 66 people who identified as Pequot in the entire United States, although the number has now increased to over 1,000. The Mohegan and the Pequot were actually originally part of the same group, but by the Pequot War, the two had split. Finally, the Narragansett were located in what is now modern-day Rhode Island. And now, my friends, we begin. Since Jamestown, the first permanent English settlement in the British colonies of the Americas, which had been founded in 1607, there were many wars, usually over land, between the colonists and the American Indians. For this episode, though, I'm focusing on a topic that I only learned about recently— I had the opportunity to attend a workshop on indigenous American cultures led by Shanae Bullock and hosted at the Flat Rock Archives in DeKalb County, Georgia. During the workshop, Shanae stated that there had been American Indian slaves in colonial America and that many of the initial slaves had been captives or prisoners of war after the Pequot War. 
I had never learned this, or if I did, it was one or two sentences in a textbook that didn't strike me the same way as the presentation I was attending. To be quite frank, my knowledge of the Pequot War, also pretty hazy. So that evening, as one does, I went home and began to research the history of American Indian prisoners of war, and thus an episode was born. I also want to point out that when reading the works included in the further reading at footnotinghistory.com, and I'm sure that all of you go immediately to read these works as you should, Many of these works only mentioned that it's in the last few decades that scholars have become interested in how American Indian prisoners of war themselves were treated by the settlers. Instead, for a long time, the majority of scholarly interest, at least, resolved around how American Indian tribes treated English settlers they captured. Again, though, this switch in the study of the relationships and statuses of American Indians and English settlers was actually also new to me, as I didn't remember learning much American Indian history in colonial America Maybe just a quick introduction to Squanto and Pocahontas, both presented as very happy to help the settlers in the narratives I seem to remember from school. So when diving into this topic, I was pretty much a blank slate. And as a blank slate then, I needed a lot of context. And that, my friend, is what you are about to get. A lot of context. To begin with, the Pequot War. In the mid-1630s, competition over land and resources in the area now termed New England was fierce between the colonists, the Pequot, and the Narragansett, as well as a number of other tribes. Not only were different groups cutting into the trading markets of each other, a massive hurricane had actually also limited the food people had to survive the winter. A Pequot sachem, or chief, was kidnapped and murdered by colonists. The Pequot retaliated in kind. Then, allies of the Narragansett became involved and they too murdered a group of English traders. The Pequot actually gave sanctuary to the members of their own tribe and the allies of the Narragansett. Each time, the English colonists asked the Pequot to hand over the guilty parties, but each time the Pequot refused. They agreed instead to provide goods to make up for the actions, but they weren't going to give the accused themselves. The English attacked the Pequot, and even though most of them escaped, the English burned down the Pequot village and crops. And remember, there was already a food shortage. So the Pequot retaliated again with attacks on Fort Saybrook and the Connecticut colony. The Narragansett sided with the English in the hope of getting back some land they'd actually lost to the Pequot about 15 years before. The Mohegan also sided with the English. And this brings us to the Mystic Massacre and the image that's on this episode's blog post at footnotinghistory.com. Together with the Mohegan and the Narragansett, the English settlers planned an attack on the Pequot village of Mystic. While only a few English soldiers actually breached the village, in order to escape, the Englishmen set fires. Ultimately, the fire spread so quickly that most of the men, women, and children in the village actually died. Approximately 700 Pequot, though, escaped, and they became refugees. And when they surrendered to the English, those refugees became servants or slaves in the New England area as far away as Barbados. Prisoners of war, then, aren't limited to how we think of it today, where it's a combatant. Prisoners of war after the Pequot War were not limited to those who fought back against the settlers. Those who surrendered, including women and children, were taken by the English to be servants or enslaved. Most male combatants, they were executed, but non-combatants, including men, who surrendered or captured were considered captives and the spoils of war. And according to the settlers, this was okay because they saw these people as complicit in the actions of the other members of their tribe. Based on communication between colonial governors and English settlers in New England and the Caribbean, one of the actual stated goals of the Pequot War was to gain Pequot captives who could be used as servants or slaves because there was a labor shortage in the British colonies. 
Okay, so what actually then happened once a person was made a servant or enslaved by the British colonists? Well, first we're going to review what happened to the female American Indians, especially of the Pequot, including children and adults. Most of them were actually kept as servants or enslaved in New England. But after that, we'll go over the threat and reality of being sold to Barbados, most often experienced by male American Indians, but eventually by any and all American Indians and why this shift also happened. So, as I said, many women and children were also included in the captures, or the surrenders, and were then sold as servants or enslaved, again, both terms were used, to others, most likely English settlers. Initially, it seems, many residents of the Massachusetts Bay especially appreciated this influx of forced laborers. Like most of the British colonies, Massachusetts Bay had more men than women, both for settlers and for servants or slaves. Male servants or slaves often ate more than their female counterparts, but also the division in labor in the colony was highly gendered. The male servants or slaves helped with farming and other outside work. Women, in general, were responsible for the care and feeding of the household. And so if you didn't have a female servant or slave, the female head of the household was then responsible for all of that because the male servants or slaves were not required to do those jobs. According to reports, the heads of the household, the female heads of the household, were often overwhelmed. One positive impact of moving to the New England area after a, a few decades was that the infant and child mortality rate was actually lower than it had been in England, meaning that female settlers were often responsible for their households, as well as multiple young children and infants at the same time. These women, as we know from their letters back to family in England, struggled, and many of them seemed to believe that the answer lay in acquiring female American Indian servants or slaves. A popular rumor spread by many, although not all, British settlers about the American Indians was that male American Indians were lazy, and all they were responsible for was hunting and fishing, whereas female American Indians took care of all the domestic issues, anything agricultural too, such as planting or harvesting. Although Roger Williams, yes, that Roger Williams who founded Rhode Island, also published works in which he described the division of labor in American Indian communities as much more equitable. For most settlers, they believed that female American Indians were industrious, but also submissive. In a pamphlet published in England, female American Indians were described as going to white female settlers and complaining about the laziness of the male American Indians and how much the female American Indians wished their male partners were more like Englishmen, or even that American Indian women wished they could live with the English and leave their communities behind. It's unsurprising, then, that many English settlers believed that female American Indians would make the perfect servant or slave and the Pequot War gave them the opportunity to test this theory. It's also unsurprising, though, that these assumptions and theories were largely incorrect. Not that American Indian women could not work hard, but that they were not necessarily this perfect, docile servant or slave that the women of the English settlements believed them to be. Private letters by English settlers, not those public tracts in which they were trying to attract English settlers, reveal that many of the Pequot women's servants or slaves did not speak English nor did they understand English ways of life and the skills necessary to complete tasks. Churning butter, for example, was not a habit of the Pequot, but was a large part of the life of a woman in an English settlement. I do wonder, because later we know that slaves of African descent would resist slavery by working slowly or acting like they couldn't understand directions, if some of the complaints about the Pequot women would fall into this category of deliberate inaction or passive resistance. But since our evidence comes from their English masters, we just don't know. Another issue for the New Englanders who hired or bought American Indian servants or slaves, like the Pequot, 
were that if the servant or slave escaped, other American Indian groups would give them sanctuary. For example, the sachem, or chief of the Mohegan, Uncas, was known to protect escaped servants or slaves, much to the dismay of the settler government. The actions of Uncas and other sachem in saving some of the Pequot women might not have been completely altruistic, though, because in Pequot, Mohegan, and Narragansett societies, high-status women carried a lot of power. These groups still had a lot of matriarchal customs. Women who the Mohegan gave sanctuary to often married a member of the tribe and brought with them their power and respect. Now, while women and young children, especially girls, were often kept in New England, the Pequot men who surrendered, along with other American Indian men, were sent to work as servants or slaves in Barbados or Bermuda or Jamaica. Sending prisoners of war to Barbados was an English custom, and in fact there was a term for it, to be Barbadosed. During the English Civil War, also in the mid-1600s, Scottish opponents were sent as slaves to the colonies, but the Scottish slaves only served specific terms before being given back their freedom. Conversely, during the time of the Pequot War, the colonial governor of Barbados passed legislation stating that slaves of American Indian or African ancestry were to be held in bondage in perpetuity, as were their children, which was a sharp and stunning departure. It is no surprising, then, that during the Pequot War, some of the men who surrendered did so specifically to avoid being sent to the Caribbean. In fact, that's what they asked for, and that's what they hoped that their surrender would achieve, that they would not be Barbadosed. Ultimately, however, to be sent to the Caribbean proved to be the fate of most of the male surrenders. Within a short time, English settlers in Barbados were writing to convince the Massachusetts colony governor to start even another war to get more American Indian captives to work their land, and maybe even to trade for African slaves. Initially, Pequot and other American Indian men sent to Bermuda did so with the injunction that they should be converted to Christianity, and after that would no longer be slaves. Within a generation or less, though, this release from slavery was also removed. Conversion was often still demanded by owners, but it no longer meant freedom for the Pequot men. The enslavement of American Indians in colonial America did not end in the 1600s, nor was it limited to the New England area. In our further reading, you can find works that trace the development of American Indian slavery, a history that I also am still continuing to learn about. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>